All right, our scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. You guys can follow along with me. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Um, yesterday... I was in the kitchen, and I was making this dessert, like an apple crumble, and I cut like seven or eight apples, put them in a dish, covered them with sugar, put the butter in there, cinnamon, and then I was making the topping, and the last ingredient that I needed were these rolled oats that I bought from Trader Joe's about like a few weeks ago, so they're new, and then I'm looking for them, and I can't find them, and I... Uh, Kiwan walks into the kitchen and I'm like, hey, do you know where these rolled oats went? I bought them like a few weeks ago. And he's like, oh, I threw them away because I thought they were old. And I was like, why did you do that? You didn't even check the expiration date. And so he kind of ruined. I can't even put the dessert together because I didn't have the last ingredient. So your speaker for today is the one who ruined my dessert yesterday. Please welcome Pastor Key. You uh, throw your husband under the bus and then introduce him. Thank you, wife. We'll have words later. Um, let's pray. I need to pray. Uh, will you join with me in prayer? Father, um, we come to you, I come to you this morning with uh, very feeble human words. Um, but I offer up to you, and uh, I pray that somehow through these words, uh, you would speak to me, uh, you would speak to us. Um, we thirst and we long to hear from you, and so I pray that this morning, uh, that is what would happen. So speak to us uh, through your spirit, uh, and may we leave this place uh, having encountered you in a new, new way. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. Hey man, man, I am, I'm feeling it too. I'm so tired. This morning I was looking over my manuscript. I was like, God, this is not going to be good. Uh, it's just all these kind of flow errors and stuff like that. But, but I said, I'm going to offer it to you anyway, and hopefully uh, somehow you'll be able to hear uh, God's word through it. And honestly, you know, my desire every Sunday is... Uh, for you to hear God, uh, and you know, if if I get in the way, I get really frustrated. So today, this morning, uh, really, we we need the Holy Spirit to uh, to be working. So if you can, you know, quietly in your own minds, lift a prayer for for the Word of God, that'd be fantastic. Okay, so today is uh, the beginning of Advent. I thought last week was, but it's not last week. It's today. Today's the beginning of Advent. Uh, Advent is um, a season in the Christian calendar. Uh, it's four, four Sundays before uh, Christmas uh, where Christians are looking forward to commemorating the, the birth of, of Christ. Uh, another aspect of Advent is, um, is 
that we are also awaiting the arrival of the second coming of Christ. So we kind of celebrate those, those two things uh, during uh, the season. Advent means arrival, right? And so that's what we're doing. Uh, Advent is actually, in the Christmas season, is actually one of my favorite seasons of the year. Um, partially because of the Christmas music. I absolutely love uh, Christmas music. Uh, gifts are a wonderful part of it, too. In our family, it's not as good because we don't give gifts to adults. We just give them to the kids. Uh, when you're married, when you buy gifts to each other, it's from the same bank account, so it doesn't, it doesn't count. Uh, so it's not as nice, the gifts part, but it's still there. Uh, the festive decorations, sorry, I'm really, I love the trees and the colors and the lights. Uh, and even the movies, right? Christmas movies, it's something about them, right? Uh, Die Hard 2, it's a fabulous Christmas movie. Um, I, I had the Blu-ray, I haven't watched it yet, I watch it every year. And then The Family Man, I think The Family Man is my favorite Christmas movie. I was having a discussion last week about it with somebody, and it was, it was one of his favorite movies as well. Uh, Nicholas Cage does a fabulous job in that movie. Anyway, uh, so all that is nice, but I would say what really makes the season what really makes the Christmas Advent season for me is the, the, the Bible stories, right? There's just something about the Christmas stories. Right? They, they just really, for some reason, they just really capture our imaginations. Uh, when you read them in the, in the Gospels, right, if you ever, you know, read the Christmas accounts in, in Matthew and Luke, there are these feelings uh, that, that get stirred up in our hearts for, for many of us. And there's this, there's just this sense of wonder about uh, the Christmas stories, which is why actually I think so many Christmas songs have that element of wonder just oozing out of them, right? When you listen to Christmas music, you know, especially the, the classic Christian uh, carols and hymns, it's something just, the wonder just oozes out of uh, that music. Well, <clears throat> what we're going to do uh, in this very short Advent series is we're going to take a closer look at some of these Christmas stories. Now, as we go through them, uh, we are going to feel that sense of wonder, right, as, as we look at these stories. Uh, but I also think uh, we're going to be a bit surprised because uh, a lot of these stories deal with some pretty difficult realities, right? In fact, uh, the closer I look at these stories, the more, the more sobering they've actually become for me. Okay, so in these Christmas stories, along with the wonder, there's actually a, a healthy dose of real life. You know, during this Christmas season, to read the stories, there's actually a very healthy dose of real life. Uh, but what's beautiful, what I find so beautiful in the, in the Christmas stories is in the interaction of those two things, right? The wonder and the hardship, right? There's a hope that emerges from these stories that, that's real, right? That, that's substantive, and I would say uh, a hope that's indestructible. So what I want to do today is I just want to dive into the story that, that we read. Um, the first part of the text, which is where we're going to spend the lion's share of, of the time today, it goes like this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel, uh, the an angel Gabriel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So, I'm not sure if everybody, anybody knew this, uh, but Gabriel is just one of two angels in the Bible that are named. Right? All the other angels, if you read about them in the Bible, none of them are named. We don't know any of their names, and there are a lot of them. Okay, so Gabriel is just one of two angels that are named in the Bible. Now, that in and of itself should communicate, how communicate to us how big of a deal Gabriel is. But we're actually told explicitly how big of a deal uh, he is a few verses earlier in, in the book of Luke, right? Actually, just early in the chapter. Early in the chapter, if you, if you read in Luke, we have Zechariah the priest, right? And Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, comes to him and tells him that his wife Elizabeth is going to be giving birth to a son. Right? They haven't been able to get pregnant their entire life. They've gotten, they're really old. But the angel says, you're going to give birth to a son, and that son's name is going to be John, right? John the Baptist. Well, after he says that uh, to them, this is what Gabriel says. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. 
So Gabriel coming to Mary in today's text is a really big deal because he's actually coming to her from the very throne room of God, directly from the very throne room of God with direct orders from God himself. But I think there's another important detail uh, that we need to know about Gabriel that really kind of emphasizes what a big deal this is. You know, Gabriel actually shows up somewhere else in the Bible. You guys know where that is? It's in the book of Daniel, right, in the Old Testament. Gabriel comes to the prophet Daniel, and basically he, he explains a vision to him. So put that together, what this means is this angel, who according to the commentators is one of the highest-ranking angels in the hierarchy of angels, if not the highest, right, he's been around since the Old Testament times and even before, You know what that means? It means Gabriel has been working at God's right hand, partnering with him all of these eons to bring about the unfolding of God's kingdom. I mean, just imagine the epic things that Gabriel must have seen. He's been laboring pretty much all of his existence so that the story of God's kingdom would come to fruition. You know, the story of God's kingdom is a story of all stories. And Gabriel has been front and center in making that story happen. So if Gabriel comes to you, God is not messing around. Right? He's got something really important to tell you if God selected Gabriel to come to you. But here's the thing. Look at who it is that Gabriel comes to. This all-important angel who's done incredible things for God. His next assignment is this little 15-year-old girl in the middle of nowhere. You know, the village Nazareth was so tiny and obscure that the author has to go out of his way to indicate to the reader where it is. You know, this place, you might not heard of it before. It's actually in the town of Galilee. That's basically what he says. You know, according to archaeological evidence, the town, Nazareth, was at most, at most 500 people. And that's tiny. Okay? So in this place of obscurity, there's 15-year-old Mary going about her ordinary life. Right? She's unmarried. She has no money to her name. She has no credentials to speak of. She has no social capital or influence. And she's betrothed to a carpenter. All the commentators that I read point out that in that society, Mary was pretty close to the bottom rung in terms of importance. Yet here in today's text, we see the great Gabriel coming to this Mary to tell her that she, in all of her ordinariness and insignificance, that she is going to be one of the single most important individuals in the next chapter of God's kingdom unfolding here on earth. Gabriel has been a steward over the unfolding of God's kingdom since the dawn of time. It's the most epic story that's ever been told. And God is now enfolding Mary into that story. Okay, that's what Gabriel coming to her means. So I was reading uh, some commentaries in preparation for the sermon, and uh, I came across something that a scholar wrote that just really jumped out at me. And I read it to you. This is, a, this is Mark Coleridge. He's a Lucan scholar, a scholar who specializes in the book of Luke. He says this, God, God does not so much enter a story as make a story. Okay, God does not so much enter a story as make a story. There's just something about that statement that captures what I feel when I read this story story about Mary. Okay, that short sentence, right? God does not so much enter a story as make a story. A short sentence is, is like this beautiful word painting of what God is doing with Mary. See, Mary is just going about her ordinary life, right? She's going about her ordinary life. And the whole time, God is working, and he's planning, and he's crafting, and he's giving orders to angels regarding her life. And Mary has no idea that any of this is going on. But what the text shows us is that God has been hard at work writing her story. 
you know, when Gabriel comes to her, this is what he says. He says, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. What Gabriel is doing there is he's giving Mary a peek into the reality underneath her reality. He's telling her what her true story is. You know, to marry her reality is that she's this little 15-year-old girl living a very ordinary life. But what Gabriel does is he peels back that reality to show her what's really going on underneath. What's really going on is that she has been on God's mind. You know, when you highly favor someone, right, you think about them. You think about those that you highly favor. When Gabriel reveals to her that she's highly favored in God's eyes, it means that God has been thinking about her. He's been doting over her. He's been, in fact, obsessing about her. And when Gabriel follows up with, the Lord is with you, that's not just a throwaway sentence. When he says the Lord is with you, what he's doing is he's revealing to her an objective, concrete truth about reality, that the presence of God is with her and actively working in her life. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Underneath that statement is a whole world of God's activity in Mary's life. And it's, a, and it's a story that Mary is completely oblivious to up to this point. She had no idea that she was favored before this moment. She had no idea that God was with her in this way. She had no idea that her life had any sort of meaningful significance for the kingdom of God. She didn't know any of that stuff. She did not know that her story was like this. That she had a story like this. That God had prepared for her a story like this. Here's what's so amazing about the Christmas stories. I actually recommend you read all the Christmas stories, right? Here's what's so amazing about the Christmas stories. When you read them, who are the people that are highlighted? Who are the people that are shown favor in the Christmas stories? Well, you have Mary, right? An insignificant little girl in the middle of nowhere. You also have the shepherds, right? The first people who get the privilege of hearing about the birth of Jesus are some no-name shepherds in a random field. You also have the Magi. The Magi were, were one of the first people to see the Son of God in the flesh. Right? They were one of the first people to be given that privilege. And who were the Magi? Who were they? They were pagan Gentiles. So to the Jewish people, these guys were outsiders. Yet they, these outsiders were guided by God to celebrate the birth of Jesus. You also have an old dying man named Simeon and an old widow named Anna, both of whom are told by the Spirit the identity and the significance of the baby Jesus. They were singled out to be given that knowledge, these two obscure people. And you also have the manger. I know, I know this seems a little bit silly, but you know, that manger up to that point was just a dirty feeding trough for an animal. But now that manger has the privilege of holding the king of the universe. That's not some random detail. That was intentionally planned by God. The manger has, you know, you know the manger, right? The manger has become one of the most iconic symbols in the Christian stories. And I think God meant it to be that way because that manger captures in such a concrete, tangible way the nature of our God. That manger, you look at the manger, that captures, that gives you a picture of the nature of our God. And what is that nature? That nature is that God is always taking the people who have been overlooked the outsiders, the weak, the lowly, the poor, the quote-unquote nobodies. God is always taking people like that and folding them in to the story of his kingdom. All these people who society deemed insignificant are now etched permanently into the very words of scripture itself. I mean, talk about being folded into God's story. Now, Unless you're a, uh, a pathological narcissist, uh, 
most of us in here, we look at our lives and we're like, it's a fairly ordinary life that I'm living. And most of us were like, ah, my life is kind of ordinary. But the reason you say that is because you are forgetting to look at the story underneath your story. Now, we're not going to get the privilege of giving birth to the Messiah like Mary did. Uh, that's not our story, and I don't know if that's necessarily a privilege, right? You're not going to give birth to the Messiah like Mary did, okay? But God does not hold that against us. See, if God is true to his character, right? If God is true to his character, people like us, we're his jam. Ordinary people like us, we are his thing, okay? We're what he's all about. In fact, the less significant you feel, I really believe this, the less significant you feel, the more that God is probably obsessed about you. If the Christmas stories are any indicator of who God is, that means God, not only has he had you in his sights, okay? God, not only has he had you in his sights, but he's been writing your story with the same level of attention and detail that he did Mary's. But some of you are like, but Pastor Keith, she got Gabriel to tell her her story. Who do we get? You know who we got? We got the very son of God himself, Jesus, telling us with his own words and with his own actions what we are to him and to the kingdom. Look at the cross. You know the cross? The cross is the definitive communication to us of what we mean to him. In the kingdom. If he would do the cross, if he would do go through that cross for us, that tells us what we mean to him in the kingdom. What he did on the cross tells us how much God wants us in his story. This story of all stories, Jesus has carved out a place for us in that story with his blood. If we would just step into it. But someone's like, Oh, but what Jesus did on the cross, right? He did that in mass for everybody, right? He didn't do it specifically and individually for me. Now, I actually, I actually empathize with that sentiment. You know, there are a lot of times in my life where I've actually felt the same way. Yeah, you know, he died for everybody, but, but does he see me as an individual? Right? When he died on the cross, was he just thinking about humanity in general? Or was he thinking about me? Was I on his mind? Was my story on his mind when he did all of that? Well, this is where coming to Jesus in the Gospels is actually very helpful. This is why you need to read Jesus in the Gospels. You know this feeling uh, that because Jesus died for everybody, it's somehow therefore less personal. That feeling, that's actually rooted in a theology that's very misguided. Right? And where, wherever we have misguided theology, that's where we, know we need Jesus to inform and correct our theology. You know, in the gospel accounts, Jesus tells us point blank that God knows the number of hairs on our head. Each of us. He says, each of us, he knows the number of hairs on our head. I mean, that is such an insignificant detail which, like I said in the past, probably changes every few minutes. Yet God says he knows that detail about all of us, right? Right now, but do this, I lost a few hairs. God knows the new number. That's what this is saying. You know, when's the last time you read a novel where the author tells you the exact number of hairs on the protagonist's head every few minutes? What was the last novel you read that the author gives you that kind of detail? I've read a lot of books in my life, and I don't remember ever reading an author offering that level of detail. Why? Why don't authors offer that level of detail? Because it's irrelevant to the story. No author goes to that level of granularity with irrelevant details. Not even Tolkien. I mean, Tolkien will talk about trees like till the end of time, right? But he, not even he goes to that level of detail. Yet here, God is saying, 
when he says he knows the number of hairs on your head, there God is saying he knows your story down to that level of detail. If that's how much God dotes over the smallest, most insignificant detail in each of our lives, trust me, whenever he does anything for humanity as a whole, he's doing that with you specifically in mind. I love uh, C.S. Lewis on this. Uh, he's, uh, it's just He's so good at, with words. He says this, God is not hurried along in the time stream of this universe any more than an author is hurried along in the imaginary time of his own novel. So what he's referring to there is when you write a novel, say a, a fictional novel, right? There's the, the characters in that novel are experiencing time linearly, right? They're just kind of going through their lives. But the, what the author can do is they wrote the book so they can flip to any point in that timeline and just kind of dwell in that one moment, this one little detail maybe about this person, as long as that person wants, that author wants. And C.S. Lewis continues. He says, he has infinite attention to spare for each one of us, just like the author that I described. He does not have to deal with us in the mass. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. When Christ died, he died for you individually just as much as if, he had, if you had been the only man in the world. Now, what C.S. Lewis refers to in this example, there's some philosophical problems with it in terms of time and eternity and stuff like that. But the, but the general point still pertains, right? Because of God's omnipotence and omniscience, he has the power to be with us and know each of our stories, even though there are billions of people in the world. But see, here's the thing. Even on top of that, right, there's something else. When, when we become believers, the Holy Spirit comes and he shacks up inside each and every single one of us. That's what the Bible teaches. Okay? The Bible doesn't put it that way, but that's basically what it is. The angel Gabriel, in today's story, he just came to Mary once. He told her her role in God's story, and then he went away. But we get God himself taking up permanent residence inside of us. That's a promise that Jesus gave us. We get God himself taking up permanent residence inside of us, regularly telling us truths about who we are. God is constantly telling us our kingdom story if we would just listen to him. This is who God is. Right? This is his nature. You know, when you read the gospel accounts, you actually see this aspect of God's character on display everywhere. Everywhere in the Gospels, you see this on display. Jesus is constantly taking people and giving them individual kingdom stories. Right? You know the Samaritan woman who had five husbands, who's ostracized by her own people? She becomes one of the first people to whom Jesus, Jesus reveals that he's the Messiah. And as a result, in response to that, she becomes one of the first evangelists in the Gospels. Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons driven out of her, becomes one of the first witnesses of the resurrection. And her testimony has been shared in every generation of the church from its inception. A murderer becomes one of Jesus' most, most faithful disciples and ends up writing most of the New Testament. Tax collectors, prostitutes, slaves. Jesus sees all of them and embraces them into the story of God. And there are innumerable followers who aren't even named. But every single one of them has a story that Jesus sees. And every single one of them has a story in his kingdom. You know, sometimes, you know, we'll read about the Christians in the Bible, right? And we see parts of their story written in the Bible, Okay, and because they're recorded in the Bible, we think that they're somehow more saintly than us, right? They're, they're somehow more important than us. But, you know, those very people in the Bible will be the first ones to tell you that their being recorded in the Bible doesn't make them important in the least, any more important in the least. They are actually recorded in the, in the Bible. Okay, listen to this carefully. They are actually recorded in the Bible merely to illustrate to us how important ordinary people are like them, are to God. I mean, think about it. And this is why thoughtful theology is so important. If God is all about ordinary people, right, why would he then diminish ordinary people by saying, hey, you're not recorded in the Bible, so you're not important? That doesn't make any kind of sense. He would never do that. And so we need to stop doing that to ourselves. 
Right? The Bible, in fact, illustrates to us how important we are to him. You know, um, when I was a junior high kid, I was very insecure, very, very insecure junior high kid. I didn't feel like I had a story worth telling, uh, let alone worth living. Uh, but then, you know, towards the end of junior high, a youth pastor, he taught me uh, and he showed me how much God loves me. Uh, and he showed me that, that God sees me and that God has a story for me. And when, when I started hearing that kingdom story being told about my life, I came alive for the very first time in my life. Now, you know, throughout my Christian life, I grew in fits and starts. But even to this day, I still feel God whispering to me new pieces of my story. And every time I hear that story, it brings me to life. And what I found is the more I go to God and seek him and ask him to guide and to craft my story and to tell me my story, the more I find in that place peace and healing and joy, love and fullness and wonder, in fact. And every time I hear God whispering to me parts of my kingdom story, there's a wonder that just wells inside of me. Why? Why would you have this story for me? But it comes up. You know, taking ordinary people like me and telling me my kingdom story, that is what God loves to do. It's written all over the Bible. That is his character. We see it in what he does in Christmas, right? He takes people and he tells them their kingdom story, right? We see it in his life, all throughout his life as he's walking the earth. He's telling people their stories. Society is telling them, no, this is what you are. Jesus is like, don't listen to them. What you are is this. You are a child of the king. This is your story. We see it in his death and resurrection. That is a proclamation of what our future is going to be. Children of the king. He died so we can have that story. And we see it as he works tirelessly in believers through the Holy Spirit. Jesus puts the Holy Spirit inside of us to what? To sit there mute? No, he puts the Holy Spirit inside of us to keep reminding us of our story. That's what he says in the Gospel of John. Now, there's a lot more to talk about in this passage. Um, And I was writing it, I'm like, oh no, I'm coming towards the end. I need to (laughs) hurry up. There's a lot more to talk about this passage, but I'm just going to highlight one more thing that I feel like the Spirit was placing on my heart uh, this past week, and then we'll go into communion. So after Gabriel tells Mary that she's going to give birth to the Son of God, right, after Gabriel gives her that news, in verse 37, Gabriel, Gabriel's last words to her are, what? For no, God, no word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. Now, part of why he says that is to, to reassure Mary that what he said to her is going to happen. Right? That's partly why he says that. But there's also something else that Gabriel is referencing when he says that. Something else that he's referencing. See, the things that are going to come to pass through Mary that Gabriel just mentioned, prophets foresaw those things centuries before. Hundreds of years before Mary was even born, prophets prophesied the coming of the Son of God. So for Gabriel, when he says that no word of God will ever fail, he's also referring to those prophecies. Those words were uttered centuries before. And for centuries, people wondered, will these things come to pass? And Gabriel's word here is a resounding, yes, God's words always come to pass. These words that were uttered generations before, they are coming to pass in this very moment. Jesus actually comments on these prophecies in the book of Matthew. He says, For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. But here's the thing, right? If I'm being honest, I've always actually had a troubled relationship with these prophecies. You know, as powerful and as accurate and as incredible as they are, there was always something about these prophecies that bothered me, okay? And what bothered me is the time scale of these prophecies. What really bothered me was the time scale of these prophecies, okay? And what I mean by that is this. So 
when these prophecies were written down, right, there were people who were alive during that time, right? They were contemporary to these prophecies. They were alive when these prophecies were uttered. Well, every single one of the people who were alive during that generation, say when Isaiah wrote the prophecies of, of, of the coming Messiah, right? Every single one of the people who were alive during that generation died without even seeing a hint of those prophecies being fulfilled, and multiple generations after that generation also died without seeing a hint of those prophecies being fulfilled. I don't know about you, but when I wait for something, I would like it to happen while I'm still alive. Right? I mean, sometimes, sometimes I can't even wait months, let alone years. Just this past week, actually, I had a gift card and I got some money from somebody else. So I bought myself the new PS5 Slim right, off Amazon. It's supposed to come Saturday. And I checked Amazon. It says, oh, it's coming tomorrow. So it's supposed to come today. I checked this morning after I prepared my sermon. And I said, no, it's not coming today. It's coming tomorrow. I'm like, what? I can't even wait days for things. What's the point if you and your entire generation sees nothing of what's prophesied before you die. That's honestly been my struggle with these prophecies. And this is when I realized how much the culture around me has programmed my thinking. In America, we are not used to thinking beyond the here and now, right? This life is all you got. So you got to get it all in. But when you look in the Bible and you look at Jesus, you realize how impoverished and limited that view of life is. Uh, many years ago, I heard an illustration from a, a Christian speaker, his name is Francis Chan, that I think vividly captures uh, this teaching. And I have an uh, object lesson for you. Um, this is not magic, I promise. Uh, it's a rope, right? Got this from Home Depot. Um, so basically, the way Francis Chan kind of talked about it, this is kind of a modification of his uh, illustration. Oh, that didn't work. Okay. Uh, so if you think about your life, this is your life. Okay. This is the length of your physical life here on earth. And the rest of this is your life in eternity. The rest of that length of rope. So... This is your story here on earth, and this is the rest of your story. And then, you know, this little part here, man, I wonder what's going to happen there. Right? Basically, that was very silly, very simple. But I think it vividly illustrates the point that this life that we're living right now is just the tip of the iceberg. If that. Now, the problem... The problem with this illustration is, uh, you know, for us here on earth, time is linear, right? Eternity is not time infinitum. That's, that's how this kind of illustration looks. Eternity is actually timelessness, okay? So there's no time. You're just in existence, and you're in existence forever. So it's even longer than that, longer if you can use that word, okay? So my point is this. Those prophecies that go way beyond the time scale of our physical lives, they're not irrelevant to us. What those prophecies are actually doing, think carefully about this, what those prophecies are actually doing is they're giving us a clue about the, about the nature of true reality. They're giving us a glimpse into the nature of our destinies. If the time scale of these prophecies are like this, like that long, right? Hundreds of years those prophecies can only truly be meaningful for beings whose lives are meant to extend to those timescales. And that's us. So there's a place in the Gospels where Jesus is transfigured before the disciples, right? And when Jesus is in that state, this transfigured state, right, the disciples see Jesus having a conversation with Moses and Elijah, and this wasn't a vision. He actually sees, the disciples actually see Jesus having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah lived centuries before. But here they are, alive, talking with Jesus. What does that mean? 
it means the scale of our lives is far bigger than we realized. Our stories are measured not in years or decades, but eons. More than eons, in fact, eternity. Okay, And our eternal stories involve things that we can barely even imagine right now. At the end of verse 33 in today's text, what does Gabriel say about Jesus' kingdom? What does he say? He says that it will never end. His kingdom will never end. You know what the resurrection is? When Jesus conquers death for us, he's saying, this is your destiny. right? When he resurrects, he's saying, we also will resurrect. That's the teaching of the Bible. So when he resurrects for us, he's saying, this is your destiny, eternity in my never-ending kingdom. You know, what, you know what I love about the resurrection? It actually happened. You know, whenever I talk about eternal life, I know some people are rolling their eyes pretty hard. I can't believe you believe this stuff. It's so tempting to be like that. Like, oh, we made this stuff up. You know, it's just a product of wishful thinking. But you know, the more I study history, I'm telling you, and I've studied a lot of it, the more I've studied the history, the documents, the historicity, the historiography, all this stuff, I'm like, oh my God, this happened. Even on a weekly basis, I'm reading these chapters in the Bible. I'm like, oh my God, this happened. We didn't make this up. And I wish I could unpack, get all for you right now, but I can't because I hear my wife telling me the sermon's too long. Okay, but if you want to hear more about this, buy me dinner. Okay, it doesn't have to be expensive. McDonald's will suffice. Right, buy me dinner and then I'll, I'll unpack this for you. Okay, death is not our destiny, brothers and sisters. This short physical life right here, this is not our destiny, brothers and sisters. Life eternal is our destiny and Jesus proves it on the cross. And that means our stories are literally just getting started. C.S. Lewis again. He writes this at, one, at, the, end, at the end of his uh, last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. He writes this. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. He's referring to us as Christians, ultimately. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I know that sounds like wishful thinking, brothers and sisters, but it's not. And here's the thing. Jesus won't force his story on you. He really won't. He's not like that. He actually gave Mary a choice here. Mary could have said no. I, read, I was reading commentators. It's not like God would force himself on her. Mary could have said no. But Mary responds and she steps into this story that was written about her. And because she did, the kingdom of God unfolded here on earth. Now I'm just going to be very brief with this. Her being favored, right? It says, Mary, you're highly favored, right? And Mary's like, what are you talking about, Right? Her being favored was not easy. This, this, her story was not easy because after this, she gets accused of adultery, right? That even so much so that her husband actually wanted to secretly divorce her, right? They end up fleeing from people that want to take their lives, right? They, uh, there's misunderstanding because Jesus was doing these crazy things. They're like, what is going on, right? I didn't think that the Messiah was going to do this, right? And then she sees her son die on the cross, what this tells us is that being favored by God does not equal an easy life filled with health, wealth, and prosperity. And that's not what it is. But here's my guess. My guess is that Mary would not have traded it in for the world. Her kingdom story, my guess is that she would never have traded that in for the world. That life and the life that she's living right now, she realized and she knows she made the right decision. Now, let's remember, who was Mary? Just an ordinary little girl like you and me. R. Allen Culpepper, and this is the last quote. The glory of Christmas came about by the willingness of ordinary people to obey God's claim in their lives. That's the Christmas story. Okay, we're going to go to the time of communion. If we can have the, the praise uh, leader to come up. Um, 
This right here, the body and blood of Christ, what Christ did on the cross, he did so that we can be a part of his story. And so when we partake of the body and we partake of the blood, we are reminding ourselves that we, are, we have been folded into this story. And in fact, through him, we're getting a new kingdom story. And so when we come here today, I pray that we would remember that. In fact, the communion, one of the most powerful aspects of the communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, is that people from the beginning of Christianity have been doing this. And so we are partaking in something that has been passed on like an unbroken chain to Jesus Christ himself. We are part of that story. Okay? And this is not just some symbolic meal. The Holy Spirit is actually doing something here and nourishing us and, and feeding us through Okay, so before we get into the communion, let me just pray for us. Father, we pray for the Lord's Supper um, that you instituted while you were here on earth. And you told us to continue this meal to remind us, uh, to nourish us of our story. Uh, I pray that we would remember that as we partake. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. So on the night of his arrest, Jesus, what he did was he took some bread... And after giving thanks to God, he broke, he broke it. And then he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink of this, do this in remembrance of me. Whenever you partake of this body or his body and his blood, we are remembering the saving death of our risen Lord until he returns again. And how appropriate is that? On the first day of Advent, we're not only commemorating and remembering his first, first arrival, but we're also um, waiting for his second arri uh, arrival as well. Uh, so um, I'm going to invite everybody uh, who... All, all of you who consider yourselves believers to please uh, come up to the table. If we can actually have the elders to please uh, come forward and take the elements. We have George here. He's coming. Well, until George comes, I'll, I'll, I'll do both of them. So what you can do is, if we can form two lines, uh, break off a piece and put it in, in the blood and then partake of it right away. And if you can go back uh, to, your, um, to where you're sitting and just to spend that time in prayer, meditating and asking God to whisper to you your story, that'd be fantastic. Okay, so if we can start forming lines right now.
as you guys uh, keep praying, just a couple thoughts. Um, sometimes the way modern people approach God is they're like my story and then I tack God on to my story. It's not the way it works. Okay, if you want the fullness of your kingdom story, it needs to be God giving you that story. And he doesn't mean that oppressively. He means that to liberate you. Okay, so that's when you pray, be like, hey, God, what is your story for me? And let's come to uh, him with hearts of surrender. And last thing is, there are no ordinary stories in the kingdom of God. And I know I've been using the word ordinary a lot, but at the end of the day, in the kingdom of God, there are no ordinary stories. Your story has been written by the hand of God himself. Okay, so I pray that you would come to God with those in mind and just, yeah, however you feel the Spirit stirring, let's take a minute and sit there in our stories. Let's, let's ask him to speak to us our stories and whatever you hear, just uh, let that go into your heart right now. Okay, let's pray.